announcements this morning. I'd like to pray with you all this morning, and, um, and then Brother Richard will come and uh, lead us in some more worship through the music. So let's pray together before we proceed. Father, we're grateful for this day. We're, we're, we're thankful for the day that you've given us, uh, Father, and, and to, to assemble as your people here at First Baptist Church in Union City. Father, our, our hearts rejoice in who you are. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for your holy nature. We thank you for for the Trinity that, uh, that communes with us, fellowships with us, um, provides for us, um, and Father, just uh, facilitates our worship this morning. God, we're, we're mindful of the needs uh, among this congregation of prayer. Uh, Lord, we know that there are, uh, that there are uh, members of our own church that are struggling through some very difficult times. And so, Father, we'd like to pray for them collectively and corporately this morning as a church. Uh, Father, we'd like to lift them up to you and ask that you that you give to them grace and mercy, comfort uh, them in their time of need. Uh, Father, for the ministry here of the church, of First Baptist Church, I, I thank you for it. And Father, for the clear vision that you have given to us to continue to march forward into the future. Um, Lord, a, a future that's kind of unknown still, uh, but Father, one that we completely trust to you. And Father, we pray that you just continue to guide us. Lead us in all ways, in all ministries, in all, in all capacities. And so that we might maximize and make much of your name in Obine County. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here this morning. Father, I thank you for uh, the joy that they are to, to be able to worship with. Uh, Father, I pray that you bless them in their capacities, uh, that, you, it, that you enlarge their ministries so that they can do good work for you. Uh, Father, as this worship hour is now committed to you in faith, Father, may you receive it as, a, as, a, as, a, as an act of worship, uh, as an act of offering. Uh, Father, may it be pleasing in your sight. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All that we do on Sunday morning is an act of worship when we gather in his name. We gather and we, uh, we pray. It's worship. When we hear God's word, it's worship. When we are singing, it's worship. I began to think about how, um, how we offer things to God more than our, just our offering on Sunday morning. And I think about, this is a medley of songs we're going to sing. If you don't mind, take your hymn book. It's 623, 628, 629. And I was thinking about this medley of, and the composers of these songs are two people that uh, lived in our lifetime. Bill Gaither, you know, the Gaithers, Bill and Gloria Gaither, and Andrea Crouch. And they were one of very influential songwriters. Now think about this, and I'm not going to belabor this point, but these songs began with God. And God gives an idea to a composer. And then that composer puts it down on paper. And then that composer 
sells that music to ministers of music who learn it. They teach it to a choir, and a choir teaches it to the church. And then what does the church do? We offer it back to God. So it's that circle of giving back to God, what He inspired. So as we sing this medley of something beautiful, and then going into He Touched Me, and then through it all. Let's just give this all back to God as an act of worship. Let's sing together something beautiful. from that word this morning, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning, we're going to begin a theme uh, over the next several weeks of resurrection. 
Um, and uh, obviously, resurrection extends in Scripture anyway beyond uh, the resurrection Sunday. Um, Paul having much to say about what resurrection looks like for the believer. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 49, he says this, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man, man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Amen, church. Beautiful explanation for us from our brother Paul as the word of God is read in the house of God this morning. Brother. Our offertory hymn, it's hymn number 44. He knows my name. May we stand together as we sing. Thank you, Brother Richard and musicians, for this morning's worship through the music. If you'll join me in your Bibles, um, this morning we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 4. 
The book of Acts chapter 4 verses 5 through 12 is where we're going to be specifically as we kind of pull out a, um, a passage of scripture that, that speaks about Peter. Um, uh, there were many that, that, I, that I kind of wanted to use, but, but for the sake of, uh, of convenience, I, I just isolated this one uh, to, to begin of resurrection. Uh, and that, I don't want that to sound too, um, uh, too legalistic or, or too scientific. I, I mean to say that the evidence of resurrection as stated in Scripture, the, the evidence that we have that the event that Jesus Christ it did indeed bodily uh, rise from the, from the grave uh, as expressed from Scripture. Today we're going to use Peter and specifically the boldness of Peter uh, as our first evidentiary point. Um, now, the debate for resurrection has been raging for l- literally thousands of years. Uh, I-, I know in our modern world, we have a, a new ig- ignited effort to discredit the scriptures uh, pertaining to resurrection. Um, but the discussion around resurrection has been going on even before Christ. Um, it really took off when Jesus did indeed rise from the grave. Um, even among the, the Jews of the day, there was this debate, this division, even among the Orthodox Jews about resurrection. Uh, there was one group, the Pharisees, that believed in a bodily resurrection. There was another group, the Sadducees, who didn't. Um, and so, so this resurrection discussion um, uh, has, has been going on for some time. It, it is still going on in our world today. In fact, the 2020 state of theology study that was conducted by Lifeway found this to be true for Americans. Uh, The 2020 state of theology study uh, revealed that roughly 60% of Americans, only 60% believe in a bodily resurrection as according to scripture. Only 70% of mainline Protestants, and what I mean by mainline are Lutheran, Episcopal, United Methodists, PCUSA, American uh, Baptist Churches, the United States, and of course the United Church of Christ. These groups, these mainline groups that are considered theologically liberal, along with Catholic, uh, the Catholic faith, expressed belief in the bodily resurrection. Only 70% of those groups believed that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. Now the number is a little higher for evangelicals, which is what we are. Uh, 90% of evangelicals in this 2020 state of theology study expressed belief in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, that number was even down a little uh, among even evangelicals. But considering this, many today, as they've always have, find it difficult to believe in the miraculous bodily resurrection of Jesus. To them, it defies science. It doesn't make sense, Right? It doesn't make sense uh, to, that, that the laws that govern our world would somehow be violated and reversed, and where once death reigned, now life is there once again. But when you look at Scripture, uh, the bodily resurrection of Christ is actually very easy to defend. It's very provable according to Scripture. Though many reject it, and increasingly more so, the Bible is really very clear on this issue. Um, as it pertains to the evidences of it. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at these, 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 uh, these issues from Scripture. We're going to look at how Jesus not only resurrected from the grave, but, but, but how it's verified by Scripture. 
And we're going to look at things that happened. And I'm actually going to do this in reverse because that's kind of like how I am. You know, I know typically leading up to Resurrection Sunday, we, we go through the weeks, you know, preceding and all that kind of thing. Well, I want to do the exact opposite. I want to actually go after the resurrection and work our way backwards, right? That's just, that's just how it is. It'll, it'll be fun, I promise you, okay? It'll be fun. Um, uh, because, because what happened after the resurrection, um, and in and, and, and many pockets, today we're going to talk about Peter, but what happened after the resurrection really verifies, it really, it really gives to us reason to rejoice on Resurrection Sunday, in our text today, we are going to discuss how Peter, and Peter's story is really reflective of the other 12 as well, uh, who experienced transformation. They were different men before and after the resurrection. All right? Peter specifically, as we're going to look at in Scripture here, but the others as well. Their transformation is a testimony to the veracity of the event. All of these men, save John, would carry this transformation with them to martyrdom. They would carry this testimony uh, of transformation to the grave. And might I say this morning that men, as our world wants to say that, that the resurrection is a fairy tale, that it's a hoax, that it's a hallucination, men don't die for fairy tales. They don't die for hallucinations. They don't die because they've somehow conjured up the greatest hoax in the history of the world. They don't die for those things. What they do die for is conviction. They do die for things that are, that are so confirmed to them that they truly believe that they saw and handled the risen Lord. Their testimony bears that out. And for us in our modern world, it should do the same. Their testimonies should encourage our faith. It should encourage our hope that, that what is captured in Scripture was true and that it did indeed happen. So let's stand and read first. Uh, the, 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 let's read first uh, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Luke says this, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, being Peter and John, in the midst of them, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? And if you remember, Peter and John, the guy that was sitting at the gate, beautiful, the lame man, Peter miraculously healed him. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he was made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. Father, as it has now been read, may it, may it accomplish what you seek to accomplish with it. May it glorify you. May it edify us. 
And Father, may, may as we work this sermon out, may it be done to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. And amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Now, to appreciate why this text is so important, we have to back up and we have to look at Peter pre-resurrection. Peter, in this text this morning, is a different guy than we find before the resurrection. Okay? Totally different guy. In fact, when I read Peter's words this morning out of Acts 4, it gives me goosebumps to consider how far Peter has come in literally a matter of a few weeks. Okay? The, 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 the boldness and the, and, the, and the inspiration by which Peter now stands is, is drastically contrasted before the resurrection. Because let's not forget our, for, our first point this, this morning is that Peter is classically known in Scripture as having denied any affiliation whatsoever with the Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all remember this? The night of Jesus' betrayal and the night of his trial, Peter denies affiliation with Jesus three times. All right? Now, I, I, didn't, I, I took it a step further in your bulletin by saying he didn't just deny Jesus three times. He denied affiliation with Jesus. All right? That cuts into some very serious problems with Peter's personality and with his fellowship with Christ. The night that Peter denied him or betrayed Christ, and Peter had followed Jesus to the high priest's house and was confronted on three separate occasions by people claiming that Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. The accusations are as follows. A woman first says to Peter, This man was also with him. To which Peter responds, Woman, I do not know him. There's your first denial. A second, man, a, few minutes, a second man, a few minutes later, says, You are also one of him, or one of them. To which Peter says, Man, I am not. There's your second denial. About an hour later, a third person comes forward and says, Certainly this man also was with him. He too is a Galilean. To which Peter passionately responds, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Those are Peter's words. Now notice the progression, the nature of them words. First he says, I don't know him. Second, he says, I am not one of them. And then thirdly, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. He gives this plausible deniability. Amen. We know that word well in our modern world. Plausible deniability or is the ability to deny any involvement in illegal or unethical activities because there is no clear evidence to prove involvement. Now let's be certain this morning that his progression of denial is one of abandonment. He absolutely and he utterly denies knowing Jesus at all. After he had just spent three years of amazing ministry, watching people raise from the dead, watching blind people see, all of these things, and then he's all of a sudden, I don't know him. I don't know who he is. And then he denies being in ministry at all with Jesus. Then he denies having anything to do with Jesus at all. This abandonment is brutal, y'all. It's, it's amazingly brutal to be sure. 
Because it testifies to a man who's more interested in saving his own neck than having a proud partnership with the Son of God. It means an absolute and complete rejection of any affiliation whatsoever. I mean, it's one thing to say, I don't know him. It's another thing to say, I don't have anything to do with him. And it's another thing to say, I don't have any clue what you're talking about. Peter absolutely abandons Christ in his hour of need. Additionally, Peter is seen in the earlier, the latter parts of John, John chapter 20, verse 19 specifically, as the leader of the twelve. We see him leading in fear. That's the second point to Peter's pre-resurrection identity. After Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and subsequent burial, we find Peter, the official leader of the twelve, hiding with his disciples or with the apostles in John chapter 20, verse 19. This scripture says this concerning this event. Then, the same day at evening, this is, of course, the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, when the doors were shut, they were locked, some of your Bibles might say, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. This text is capturing the third day after Peter's denial of the Lord. Now, I'm sure a lot had passed, a lot had taken place, a lot of time had transpired for Peter, since Friday night especially. Because we know that Peter, after that, 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 that chicken crowed the third time, we know that Peter wept bitterly. He had denied his Lord, abandoned him, and rejected any affiliation with him whatsoever. So I'm sure that time between Friday night and Sunday morning were, were probably a lifetime to Peter. I'm sure a lot of conversations had happened in that, that time period. I mean, at this point, Mary had already relayed uh, the message from Jesus to go and tell his brothers that he was alive. That conversation had already happened. Peter and John had already run to the tomb earlier that morning and seen its emptiness for themselves. And what do we find Peter doing that night? Hiding in fear. He's hiding He's assembled. He led his brothers to the room, locked the door, and he hid out of fear of what the Jews were going to do to them. This type of leadership is typical to the type of man Peter was. This type of leadership is indicative of a life that struggles with faith. It testified that Peter was more afraid of men than he was God. It models the exact opposite of what Jesus had tried to teach his disciples before his arrest. Now, John chapter 20, verse 19, the verse that I just read to you, doesn't end with what I read. It actually ends with this. Then suddenly Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. And by that phrase, at that moment, at that point, everything changed for Peter. He was now standing visibly, bodily with his resurrected Lord. And his resurrected Lord, who he had denied three times, was giving him a proclamation of peace. As he's hiding in fear, as he's doing what most humans would do, 
reactions were pretty predictive. Here's Christ now standing in his midst, giving him offerings of peace. Now this, this event, this event, this changed everything for these guys. I mean, to the, to the extent that, that after the resurrection, Peter was a totally different guy. Well, in what ways? Well, the first thing is that Peter's relationship with Christ was restored. I think this goes without saying because we're not Peter. We weren't there that day. But I know that we've all been at that place in life where we have betrayed somebody. We have done something that, have, that has offended or, 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 or hurt somebody. And, and it bothered us until that, that was reconciled. Until we've made amends, till we've apologized, till we've done something to, to make that right. For Peter, Jesus comes to him in John 21 and personally restores both friendship, fellowship, and leadership to Peter. He forgives Peter. I mean, imagine just being a fly on the wall. Actually, it happened beside a seashore, but whatever. Just imagine the, the, the impact, the, the power of the event, the scene, the optics of it. He forgives Peter for his denial of having anything to do with him whatsoever. And in a word, if we can use our modern world, Peter got a second chance. That's what he got. He got a, a huge second chance, and, and Peter resolved in his heart to not mess it up this time. Peter's transformation begins at this moment. It changes who he is. And for skeptics of the resurrection, they have to reconcile this transformation. There's no way you can avoid, as a skeptic of resurrection, the the powerful and radical transformation of this man. It has to be reconciled. Right? Because Peter's transformation wasn't catalyzed that some myth had started that Jesus was bodily resurrected. It wasn't a lie that catalyzed his transformation. He wasn't trying to perpetuate a scam and, and keep it up. Peter, has, Peter was not part of some hallucination that, that, that hundreds of other people had been part of as well. That's not what changed the man. Peter's transformation was catalyzed by two things. One, he saw the risen Lord. And I'm sorry, I've never seen somebody who was previously dead come back to life. I've never seen that for myself. But I'm sure it changes somebody. Just guessing. Just guessing. I'm sure that leaves an impact. You know, I know that guy... that guy was dead. He was dead. He was, I, I, I saw him on the cross. I saw him die. They buried him. He's been in the ground for three days. And now here he stands. I mean, that alone, that seeing the previously dead Lord probably has a tendency to change people. But the other thing that changed Peter was is that his relationship with Christ had been restored. He's seen the Lord alive. His relationship with Jesus had been restored. His second chance. And look, I mean, and and I'm a believer in second chances. And I'm sure many of you are the result of, of many second chances or third chances or fourth chances. But when you are given a, another chance to make a difference, to restore relationships, to, to be repentant, to be thoughtful, to be intentional, you're going to do it. 
You're going to take that opportunity. And you're going to take it seriously. Because Peter surely did. But not only was Peter restored, Peter as a leader of the twelve, we see him in the early parts of Acts, especially leading with boldness. And, and I could probably summarize these next three points with this, this, this point right here. But what we see in the early days of the church, we see a, a much different Peter as a leader. I mean, and it's not easy to lead, and I'm not, I'm not trying to critique or, or try to offer any kind of, 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 uh, of excuse for the previous Peter, but, but what he was doing before by leading his brothers into the, into the locked room and fear is totally different than what we see him in the early part of Acts. Let me give you some examples. Acts 1.15. And you can turn back a couple pages and you can follow along with me as we look at this. Acts 1.15. Judas is dead. Judas committed suicide. There's a vacancy in the apostleship. The twelve, if you will. And there's this debate that begins to, 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 to ensue in the upper room. And so as the conversation happens in verse 15, it says, And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of his disciples and said, dot, dot, dot. We're not going to worry about the rest of it. We just see Peter in the midst of his brothers standing up and saying, Hey, here's what we should do. He's leading. He's directing. He's even citing scripture. I mean, my goodness, that's, that's a huge Indication that Peter is on the right track. He's using scripture to support what he's saying. Amen. By the way, put a little check mark next to this, a little, a little caveat. This is completely free to you this morning. If a, if a preacher or, or any other religious expositor or whatever only speaks what they want to think and never supports their text or their, their, their commentary with scripture, that's a huge red flag. Huge red flag. Okay, they can say all the philosophical stuff they want, the psychological stuff. They can say everything that's beautiful, and they can say it with, with excellence and splendor. But if it's not supported by Scripture, it's little more than commentary. That's all it is. And if it's not supported by Scripture, it's definitely not authoritative. It's just his thoughts, his opinions. Amen? Take that, tuck it away for whatever it's worth. Acts 1.15, though, we see Peter leading the twelve. They cast lots. The lot falls to Matthias. Matthias is chosen, chosen rather as the 12th apostle. Acts 2.14. Peter, standing up post-resurrection on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.14, we see Peter, verse 14, says, Standing up with the eleven, he raised his voice. And he said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. I can see it now with my own mind's eye. I can see it, Peter, in the midst of all of these people, some crazy stuff going on, stuff ain't people never seen before, people talking in tongues and all these hearings and all this stuff going on. Peter, taking initiative, preaches his first sermon in the entire New Testament. Beautiful. I mean, he even goes so far in this first sermon to level an indictment against the house of Israel. This is what he says. He goes so far in his first sermon. He says this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I mean, that's against his own brothers now. It's against his own people, if you will. 
It's quite a bold statement, if you will, from Peter, because this is the same guy that feared what the Jews were going to to do to him in the previous chapters, now telling them, it's your fault he's dead. You killed him. But by the power of God, he's alive. That's bold. Additionally, in Acts chapter 3, we see Peter and John going to the temple to pray in verse 1. On their way, they see a blind man, or rather a lame man, who was a regular beggar. Man been born, he was born lame, spent his whole life sitting beside a gate called Beautiful, begging. I'm sure many people over time just walked right by him. Amen? Just walked right by him. Didn't, he, he was the regular beggar. This day was no different. Fortunately for this man, the Peter that walked by was... So this man begging John and and Peter for some money, Peter classically says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man does. And he walks away jumping and leaping and praising God for what had happened to him. I mean, imagine, you were born lame. You ask for some just simple change, pocket change. And you walk away with so much more. And I can imagine, and it did, cause quite a stir. It was the Sabbath. That's a no-no in Jewish law. You don't do anything on the Sabbath. You don't heal people on the Sabbath. People are supposed to be crippled on the Sabbath. But it caused quite a stir. Of course, Peter, (laughs) Peter hearing the clamor, he rises up in Acts 3.12 says Peter saw it and he responded to the people men of Israel why do you marvel at this I mean I guess that's rhetorical I don't think he wanted an answer to that question but for his point why do you marvel at this or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted. Hear this. This is quite a sermon. This is lay your hair back kind of stuff. You killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has, been, was, has given him his perfect soundness in the presence of you all. This, this, is, this is good stuff. And it's indicative of the fact that Peter knows who he is now. Peter and John were subsequently arrested. My goodness. Heal somebody on the Sabbath, go to jail. But that's the way it was. And in our text that we picked up this morning in verse 5 of chapter 4, the words that I read to you earlier were addressed to the religious leaders of the day. The same body, in addition to the family of the high priest. (laughs) The same body of, of foolishness that crucified Christ, that demanded his blood, Peter is now standing up in front of and saying things like this. Let it be known to you, men of Israel, 
that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Peter never hesitated. He never, he, he never stopped and considered, well, you know, if I say this, it's probably going to get me in more trouble. He didn't consider all that. He didn't, he didn't stop or hesitate. He was leading in the power of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 8. He didn't care who these men were. They needed to hear the truth. They asked for it. He told them. Amen? Beautiful power. Amazing transformation of Peter as a leader. Now, the third point goes along with this is this was all public. Peter proclaims the kingdom of God to these men and all these people publicly. This is not the same guy that was hiding in the, in the room with the door locked. This guy's out front. He's out, he's out in the public places of the temple, etc., proclaiming the kingdom of God in Christ. Now, the public proclamation of the gospel, and this is important to make, is, is quite a step in and of itself. It's one thing to be a closet Christian. Amen? We have, we have that. We, we have people who are either young in the faith, they're, they're, they're immature in the faith or whatever, and they don't know how to just run to the front line and, and defend the gospel. They don't know yet. So they're more of a closet Christian. They're, they're the kind of Christians that you, when you realize they're Christians, you're, you're surprised. Oh, okay, you're a Christian. You know, not, I mean, you should be able to tell by someone's life that they're a Christian at a minimum. But nonetheless, there's a lot of that going on. To proclaim the gospel publicly, especially in the light of opposition, is a big step. It's a huge, it was for Peter anyway, because it meant that Peter was no longer ashamed of his relationship with Christ. Right? It meant that Peter had no reservation whatsoever about his role, about who he was and what Christ had appointed him to be. You are Peter, Kepha, and upon this rock I will build my church. It means that Peter had no hesitation saying and speaking, hear me church, the truth. We've gotten ashamed of that in more recent years of speaking the truth publicly we've become afraid of it we've become unwanting of the negative press or attention that will give us so we just stay quiet but to publicly without hesitation regardless of how unpopular or or what kind of negative attention will be received to the contrary speak preach the truth Preach Christ. Right? Yeah, it's going to cut. It's going to cut in. It's going to cut out. It's going to do all kinds of things. It's not to say that we should be the, uh, ungraceful or unmerciful. It's just to say that the, that the word will do that. It's not going to be popular. Thus, when you proclaim it, you won't be popular. But Peter had no hesitation. His model for us, it, it indicates to us that we too should have that same resolve. Because it means that Peter finally considered the costs of discipleship that Jesus once preached about in Luke 14. 
What, what, what king goes to war without first counting the costs? And until you've counted these costs, you cannot be my disciple. These are heavy words. Peter finally reached the point where he could consider the cost of discipleship and considered that they were worth dying for. The same body of believers that he was preaching condemnation to was the same one that was responsible for sending Jesus to his death. Now, a little difference, a little caveat in that is Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. They didn't take Jesus' life. He gave it willingly. That's the difference. But in our, follow, in, our, in our following of Christ, we too should be willing to do the same. That's where Peter was on the steps of this public exposition. And thirdly, or fourthly, Peter, in the face of opposition, was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is in verse 8. Peter's a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? New creature. All the old is now gone. All this new stuff has come new. And, and in this new creation, or new creature that he was, he was filled with the Spirit of God. And this Spirit, and bear witness to this, Christian, because this Spirit is what empowered him to do his job. It wasn't Peter's education, because... In fact, the Sanhedrin looked at him and said, these guys are idiots. I mean, that's paraphrasing. That's not what the King James says. Doesn't even say it in the New King James. Matter of fact, probably doesn't even say it in the message. But that's what they concluded. These guys were uneducated men. They were dummies. They were foolish. They were idiots. But they knew that Peter and John had been with Christ. And that was the transformational power that... that that the, that the religious leaders saw in these men. They were new. They, they were empowered. These same 12 apostles that fled for fear and hiding were now standing nose to nose with the Sanhedrin in opposition. It's the Spirit of God that equips us, and equipped Peter anyway, with conviction to preach the word. If there's not any conviction to preach the word, then you might check your Holy Spirit barometer. Because the Holy Spirit will encourage you and convict you to preach the word. The Spirit of God compelled Peter to speak when the opportunity presented itself. That's what all of these, these, these examples that I just read you from Acts were all opportunities that Peter took when the time came. He stood up, he shouted out loud. He initially ran to the front and said, Men of Israel, hold on a second. It was the opportunity that he took to preach the word. And it's ultimately what convinced him that all else was inconsequential to his role in proclaiming the kingdom of Christ. Now, let's look at this lastly as an evidentiary proof. Peter is evidence that the resurrection happened. That's just the bottom line. Peter and the, and the twelve, and, and many of the others too that, that are captured in Scripture are evidence that, 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 that resurrection did indeed happen. Peter, it's, it's without a doubt, has been through a radical transformation. There's, there's no way of getting around it. And, and for those who would reject or, or, or criticize the resurrection, literally, again, as I said, they have to reconcile this. 
Because one does not simply change this much unless something amazing has happened to them. Because Peter, before, is not the same as Peter after. In fact, Peter will go down in history as one of the innumerable martyrs that will take their faith with them to the grave. One of my, one of my favorite passages of Scripture comes from Hebrews chapter 11. The very closing of the chapter. This, this is drawn out. It's fleshed out. Because we, we all know Hebrews 11. We know the, the, the faith of Abraham. And we know the faith of, of Moses. And we know the faith of all these different people. But at the end of it, the writer collectively embodies all of the faithfulness. Uh, the, the individuals who were transformed so radically by the resurrection that their testimonies too took them to the grave. Listen to these words in the closing chapter of 11 of the book of Hebrews. The writer says, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered in, 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 in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world is not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And the beauty of that passage there that's captured is that the transformation that happens in the life of a believer is fundamentally rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is, it is fundamentally transformational for all who, who commit faith in Him. People don't simply live and die in such ways for made-up fairy tales. They don't die like that for hoaxes or for stories. In fact, they live and die because of things like this that have transformed or who have been transformed by the living Christ. They live, they die, because they have come to Christ, they have found fellowship with Him, and they have concluded that the rest of the world is a gigantic dunghill in comparison. It's worthless, it's nothing compared to having a relationship with Christ. These martyrs, many of them captured beautifully in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you haven't read that, I'd encourage you to do that. Many of these martyrs lived and died because they were convinced. They were convinced that nothing else mattered aside from the gospel. There's many, even outside of the testimony of Scripture, there are many letters written to Roman emperors and different people about what are we going to do with these pesky Christians? What, what, how, we can't stop them, they're, they're, they're multiplying like crazy. They're, 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 they're meeting on Sundays, for heaven's sake. And they're worshiping. How do we stop them? The answer? Kill them. And the more that died, the more powerful the gospel became. And the, blood of the, 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 the tree of the gospel grew because of the blood of these saints. They lived and they died because they were convinced that all else was inconsequential and insignificant. 
And my goodness, and compare that to the modern Christianity, modern Christianity is left wanting. This last point, though, is really indicative of us. Peter represents those who live now in the power of resurrection. As we work toward Resurrection Sunday and the celebration of our living Christ, we live now in the power of resurrection. You and I, as modern New Testament believers, this is where we currently find ourselves. Like Peter, we too have come to the empty tomb and considered what it means. Is it a hoax? Was it some kind of fabrication, a fairy tale that weak-minded people tell themselves because they're afraid of the dark, like Stephen Hawking said? That's what he said. People like us, just afraid of the dark. So we have to comfort ourselves, console ourselves with fairy tales like this. Was it a hallucination that was shared by hundreds of people? The only way that could have been possible is that they were all taking drugs together. I'm just being honest. People don't hallucinate in mass like that. It doesn't happen. Or was the event real? Did Jesus indeed rise from the dead? Is he really alive? The answer to this question offers two things to those who come to its conclusion, to those who reject it, it's a stumbling block. Bottom line. The empty tomb will forever be something that, 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 that people come to and stumble over because their rational minds simply cannot conceive it. But to those who accept it, it is eternal hope. The empty tomb tells believers that one way or the other, it's all going to be okay. That's what it tells us. That many of our loved ones who have gone on before us, the precious saints of God, our husbands, our fathers, our children, now live in the power of resurrection. They live in a new glorified state. Their bodies are impervious. Their, their spirits are impervious to the pain of this world. Resurrection offers light to those in darkness. It offers hope to those in despair. It offers comforts to those in isolation. And it provides life for those dying in a cruel world. You see, the empty tomb is transformational. And those that have come to it now live in that transformational power. We now live in that resurrection life. We now have that resurrection hope. So at the tomb where Jesus secured that glorious inevitability... So as he was, so too will we be. Amen? A beautiful truth this morning as we close. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this word. And as we come to a close with the preaching of your word, I pray that, that you magnify and that you multiply the reading of your word. Father, I thank you for our brother Peter this morning who lived in a way that was indicative, that, that, that was empowering to the fact that he was transformed. Father, that, that seeing the resurrected Christ was what changed him. That being restored into fellowship, into friendship, into leadership, made him a new man. Father, we thank you for the words of our brother Luke this morning that capture Peter's behavior and his words afterwards. 
Father, may we also too live now in the resurrection power, the hope that Peter had. May we too share it. So, Father, that we can live not in despair or in darkness, but in life and light. Father, I thank you for the reading of your word this morning as it has been read in the assembling of your people. May you bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. So